Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35. This is going to be, we're finishing up tonight in the book of Numbers. So, the cheer, that's a real cheer, huh? All right. Some final instructions here. Moses going to give the nation of Israel. Uh, you know our context by now. We've been tracking through numbers for quite some time. The children of Israel in the wilderness, just on the border of the promised land, getting ready to go in, uh, getting ready to cross over the Jordan. Moses is, Aaron has already passed away. The original generation that has come out of Egypt have all passed away. Uh, Just Joshua, Caleb, and Moses really remain. And Moses himself is getting ready to to go be with the Lord as well. But still some final instructions and things that he's going to impart here to to the children of Israel. A whole new and younger generation has risen up. A generation that was raised up out in the wilderness. And they are ready now to go in and take the promised land. And now Moses is going to give some final instructions here by the word of the Lord. Chapter 35. Uh, primarily dealing with some instructions about setting up cities for the Levites. Now, uh, quite a lengthy chapter. We won't read all of the details, but certainly I want to summarize and read some of it and summarize parts of it as well. So join me now in verse 1 of chapter 35. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. The common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure out... Excuse me, you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits. The city shall be in the middle. And this shall belong to them as common land for the cities. Now, among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee. And to these you shall add 42 cities. So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common land, and the cities which you shall give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many, from the smaller tribe, from the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance inheritance that each receives. So you'll remember that the Levites were not to inherit any land within the promised land. The Levites were given the special task of caring for the tabernacle of God. It was out of the Levites that the priest line would would be a part of, Aaron and his descendants. And so the Levites were given these spiritual tasks of taking care of the things of God, the house of God, the sacrifices of God. They were to be a ministry uh, to God, but also a ministry to the people of God. And so God said, you, Levites, you will not inherit land within the promised land, but rather I will be your inheritance. 
And so God is now giving some instruction here to the nation who's getting ready to go in and and inherit land that God has given to them. And he's saying, you know, you're going to within your lands that you will inherit. The Levites will not get any portion of land. However, they will dwell in cities within your land. And you will give them cities within your land. And around their cities, there'll be some common land that they'll use for pasture and grazing for their, their, their herd and their cattle. So God is taking care of the needs, practically, of the Levites. But He's not actually giving them their own land, but rather they'll be dispersed throughout the entire land. All of them having cities, 48 in total, uh, that will be kind of scattered through uh, the, the, the nation. And within those cities, also, uh, God tells them that there will be six of the 48 cities that you will inhabit. Six of them will be designated as cities of refuge. And he's going to go on and talk a little bit more. And we'll take a look now, verse 9, and see what this cities of refuge is all about. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, Then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They they shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And the cities which you give, you shall give six cities of refuge." You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So right now the nation is camped on the east side of the Jordan River, and you remember uh, some of the tribes were going, to head, going ahead and settling on that side. They were getting ready to cross over to the west side of the Jordan River, which the land is known as the land of Canaan. This would be the official promised land. And Scott is saying, you'll, leave, you'll set up three cities of refuge on this side for the nation that settles here, and you'll set up three cities of refuge on the other side for the balance of the nation that settles in the land of Canaan. And he gives some instruction about these cities of refuge. They are to be a place of refuge for those that find themselves accidentally killing one of their brethren. Now, uh, he calls it manslayer. We would reference it today in our language as uh, manslaughter. An accidental killing of an individual. So, in, in their culture and in this time, if someone killed... Uh, another, then the, whoever did that killing would have to also be killed, and, and there would be an avenger. So in other words, if you had a family member that was killed by someone else, if you were the father or one of the brothers, you would become the avenger. You, you had the right, you had the duty to go and bring justice for the sake of your family. It was something that you were compelled to do. You would go and you would find that person who murdered or killed the individual in your family, and then you would kill them. And this would be an act of judgment. This would be an act of revenge and avenging the blood that was lost in your own family. But God is now setting up a a situation where if if the killing is accidental, 
then we don't want to avenge that blood, but rather we want to spare that person who accidentally killed his or her brother or, or whoever was in whoever they happened to be, you know, in contact with. So you can imagine they would they would be maybe working out in the field. I mean, you're working with an axe and the axe handle fall, you know, you know, an accident. The axe handle comes off and strikes somebody in the head. Just some kind of a, even a uh, you know a, a total complete accident, but somebody is dead. Well, as it stood, that person would then be put to death by someone, an avenger from the family. What God is set, setting up is places that that person, I've killed someone, it was a complete accident, I can go to this city of refuge. These cities of refuge were dispersed throughout the land. The, the roads were to be clearly marked, clearly kept clean. This, there would be signposts so that anyone, even a, a stranger, a foreigner, who accidentally killed someone in the land could find their way to the city of refuge and they would, they would go there. This would be a city of one of the Levites. So the Levites would be there to help kind of take care of you and ensure that you had a place of refuge. And it was, it was intended not to stop justice from being served, but rather to ensure that justice would be served. And so then you would have this, this hearing in front of the leaders and the elders, and there would be a judgment. You would basically get a fair trial. So rather than somebody in anger or just revenge taking your life, I don't care if it was an accident, that was my son, and you know now they come and they kill you, you have an opportunity to take a place of refuge and then get a fair hearing and then determine whether or not it was truly an accident. Now if it was murder, then there would be a penalty for that. Now we're not going to go into all of the this, verses 16 through 34 gives a bunch of uh, kind of examples of how, um, you know, if, if somebody dies because he was hit by a stone, if he's, if he's, if he's been struck by some, something that, that could have put someone to death. So there's going to be a great deal of, of kind of instruction here to make sure whether or not it was intentional, what were the motives, was this person an enemy, were you lying in wait? So there was a strict kind of uh, rules of, of being, you know, finding refuge. You had to really be innocent. You mean really had to be an accident. You couldn't, you know, pretend it was an accident. But then we find out you were, you know, waiting on this guy to walk by, and then, oops, I accidentally, you know, hit him with my 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 club. Uh, well, I would have been waiting there for him for a couple hours, and I don't know what how it happened, but it just happened. Well, that would be so. There would be ways to discern whether or not it was truly an accident. But that's some of what the balance of the chapter gives to explain. We will just look here. We'll kind of finish it up, verse 29, uh, through the end of the chapter. You'll, you'll see this becomes something of the law of the land. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So if in fact he turns out to be a murderer, then he would be put to death, and you could not buy his, you could not buy his way out of that penalty. Verse 32, And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, 
in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. So quite a bit of instruction on this cities of refuge. So you notice there he said you can't go back to your own city, your own dwelling, until after the death of the high priest. So if you happen to have accidentally killed someone, you run to the city of refuge. They come, a hearing is made, it's determined, in fact, it was an accident, you're, you're not guilty of murder, you now had to stay in that city of refuge. If you left the city of refuge, then the avenger, was, you were open game. So you, were, you, were, you had to stay there in that place of refuge. But how long? Well, the scripture tell uh, Moses gave instruction until the death of whoever the current high priest was. Remember, there'd be one high priest. Well, they would be, you know, they would have a lifetime, a lifespan, and once the high priest passed away, that would kind of be the reset time for the cities of refuge. So this gave you some hope. You have an ac- you accidentally kill somebody. You have to stay in the city of refuge. You can't go back home to your family. You have to remain in the city of refuge, and you live there with the Levites. They protect you. You become a part of that city's culture and life. And But at the end of the current reigning high priest, when that priest passed away, that would be your freedom to go back and resettle with your family and with your own people in your own city. So if the high priest was young... Not good. You'd be in the city of refuge a long time. If the high priest happened to be up in years and just about ready to go, yeah, that's, that's good news if you're in the city of refuge, right? So this would be a way for hope still to be in, in the heart. People could still be uh, restored back to their family, but it would take uh, that time and that uh, kind of that marker for them. So, And we also notice just uh, God again talking about how the blood of the innocent defiles the land. Uh, You remember when uh, Cain killed Abel, God said, the blood of your brother is crying out to me. The innocent blood being shed in the land is something that that God is sensitive to. It defiles the land. It pollutes the land. It is a a symbol of sin and murder and, and violence within the heart of the people, and they're polluting the land as they shed innocent blood in the land. And the only way that it could be atoned for was that person who shed the blood would then have to be put to death. Clearly the death penalty was a part of the early uh, Israel understanding about justice. So uh, God holding them to that in order to keep the land pure. Well, just some thoughts for us uh, out of this chapter. Some things that kind of stood out in my own heart that I wanted to share with you. Some application for us. I thought it was interesting that God would disperse the Levites throughout the land. Kind of as though He was kind of salting the land with these people that were to represent Him. These would be the the individuals that knew something of His law, knew something of, of His commandments. And God wanted that to be spread throughout the whole, the whole nation. Let's, you know, let's say you live far from Jerusalem. You settle in a land. Your tribe is not that close to the temple. And you know, out of sight, out of mind, right? You kind of just you get into your own thing and you're just living and you're not really focusing on God or the things of God. And Jerusalem's not really on your mind. And, but here's 
these Levite cities are dispersed all through your land. You would have to give them some of your land, some of your land for them. So the presence of God kind of there in front of you all the time. A reminder. Oh, that's right. The Levites live there. That's their city. That's, those, are, those are God's people. Those are God's, uh, that's part of the priestly line. That's, that's part of God's representation spread throughout the entire land. God, I think, very practically trying to keep His presence. Now remember, up until now, they've been camped in the wilderness. And they've been all camped together, very close, very regimented. Right? The, the, the pillar by night and the cloud by day. I mean, God's presence, the tabernacle, Moses, everything is close by. They're all living in this kind of this one big uh, camp out in the wilderness. But now they're going to go in and they're going to be dispersed into the promised land. They're going to be settling in different places throughout the land. And God wants to make sure that His presence is still on their hearts, still in their mind, that they would not lose that sense of God in their midst. And so He disperses. Uh, his people throughout, and and I, I like that. It, it to me, it kind of just uh, it reminded me just of our uh, the life of the local church. You know, it's it's good to come together and to just be reminded, if you will, of God's presence in our lives. You know. Of course, a little self-serving, you know. I think it's healthy to be in church. I think it's healthy to make church a part of your life, a local church that you fellowship in, that you're connected to. That's kind of my sense here. The Levites, you wouldn't be too far from a city of, of the Levites. They would be somewhere throughout your land dispersed, and so you would always have some interaction with them, some relationship with them, some fellowship with them. And I think that's part of what, you know, in the, in the local church, God wanting all of us to be connected in some way, one to another, and also to His presence, reminder of His presence. Isn't there something about coming together and worshiping together and studying His Word together? Isn't that, it's kind of a discipline at times, but it, it's, it's good for us. It's, held, it's like, yeah, that's right, I need to be brought back to center a little bit, you know, because you get away from it and you get out living your lives and you get busy at work and you get busy in family and the trials and the storms and the you know, drama of life. And oh my goodness, God is the last thing on your mind, the last person on your mind. But then there's something of a reset, isn't there? But then we come to fellowship and oh, you begin to sing the worship and the Holy Spirit begins to stir in your heart again and you're seeing your brothers and sisters and in the Lord and then God's Word. And there's something that's refreshed. And, and I think this is part of what God has in mind. I want to look at a couple verses. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is a verse we often quote, Acts 2 and verse 42, describing that early church. This was right after the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost had come. The church was just being established. And it gives us a little flavor of what they were about at that early time. And we, we take some of our own modeling of church after this particular verse, Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that would be the study of the word, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 
So there seemed to be this regular getting together in the early church. They would come together and study the word together. The apostles would be teaching. The letters would soon be written. These letters would be passed from church to church. They would study just as we do here. We were studying doctrine. They would also have a time of fellowship. That's, you know, lives connecting, friendships established, praying for one another, encouragement, breaking bread. Now, this would be, of course, part of their fellowship life. And also a reference, no doubt, to the the Lord's table, partaking of communion, remembering Christ together. And then of prayers. The church would gather together and pray. And they would be regularly together in prayer. And so... That kind of reg- routine, if you will, not getting into some religious duty, but rather just a pattern of life, it creates a healthy spiritual environment for you to remain close to the Lord, grow in the Lord, and mature in the faith. And I think that's part of what God had in mind, putting the Levites all throughout the land, that there would be this constant connection with His people, His, His representation, if you will, of His presence in their midst. And so when we come together, the church, the church is the body of Christ. We are all individual members of the body of Christ. We all have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that is essential. And that is you know, necessary in order to become a part of the body. You must first become a member you know, of relationship with Him. You must first have faith in Christ in a personal relationship with Him. You've invited Him into your life. You've made Him the Lord of your life. You've received the forgiveness that He has. And that personal relationship then finds expression within the body. You then get fit together in your perfect place that God has called you to within the life of a local church. And this is the way that God works in the earth today. God works in this time. He was working through His nation, and He was working through the tribe of Levi in the nation. Now, today, He works in the life of the church, each of us being members of that. Turn also, you're there in Acts uh, 2. Just uh, look ahead, just same, same, same chapter. Look, look down at verse um, 46. Just a little more flavor. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this early church was a place of fellowship, a place of coming together, a place of praying one with another, praising and worshiping God together. And uh, the Lord's presence was in their lives. Turn with me also to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, and we look at the first few verses. This is when Paul, referenced here as Saul and Barnabas, uh, were to be sent out into their ministry. Now in the church, I'm in Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, They sent them away. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. So Paul began his missionary journey, having been sent out by the local church at Antioch. And I wanted you to see that, just again kind of in theme with what I'm talking about, how God is work, works through the life of the local church uh, in the heart and life of His people. And even you know, the Apostle Paul you know, you would you would think if anybody had the right to just kind of go do his own thing, maybe the Apostle Paul did, but he didn't. He was sent out and confirmed as that church was gathered, praying and fasting and ministering to the Lord. I always wondered, what did that look like? I want to know specifically, what did that meeting look like? It says they were ministering to the Lord. I mean, I have my own idea. My, my sense is they were worshiping. It was something of a worship time. Something, uh, you know, ministering to the Lord. They were just loving on God. They'd been fasting. They were praying. It was an attitude of worship and prayer and devotion. And out of that spirit, as the church was gathered, doing that together, the Holy Spirit said, and we assume that the Holy Spirit doesn't say, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe it was an audible voice in the room, but probably not because it said there were prophets there. There were those that were gifted this way. No doubt someone stood up and said, the Holy Spirit's given me a word. We're to set Paul and Barnabas, call them up, lay hands on them and send them out to the mission field. That's what God's calling them to do. And Paul and, uh, Saul and Barnab- Paul and Barnabas, they had no qualm with that. No doubt God had already spoken that in their heart. I mean, right straight away, off we go. That's what we do. We've just been waiting for God to give us the green light. And so you see how the Lord works in the life of the church. You see how the Lord wants to work even in sending out and even in the ministry in the earth. It it flows out of this connection that we have uh, with the body of Christ. So it it just struck me, and we can go back to numbers now. Um, It struck me that, you know, God kind of keeping close uh, access uh, to His people through the life of the local cities, of the Levites, and I think even today in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, he, he keeps close to His people through the life of the local fellowship, that body where you come together and, and become uh, plugged in and, and uh, sensitive and open to the Spirit of God. The other thing that stood out to me, so God's presence there in the land through the cities of, Levi, of the Levites. But also I was thinking about just the ministry calling on the Levites themselves. You know, it would be quite a, quite a difference for them going into this promised land knowing that there would be no possession there for them. I mean, I wonder how that went down with the whole tribe. You know, gosh, is this... This serving God is, is kind of costly. I mean, I know the Lord says He's our inheritance, but you know it's not as not as nice as land. You know, I mean, you can't really, you know, you know, just we wonder what was going on in the heart, and it just kind of spoke to me. You know, that that's that's where where God is looking for faith. You know, God wanted the Levites to know that. Listen, to have me is to have all that you need. I'm giving land to the people, I'm giving land to the nation, but I'm not giving land to you. I have a special ministry for you, a special calling for you in the life of this nation. And it doesn't include you possessing land, but rather it includes you ministering to me 
being specially called uh, to my purposes, and I will be your inheritance. I will be your reward. I will be all that you need. You don't need land if you have me in this relationship that he was calling them to. And I just spoke about the whole idea of, of ministry, the whole idea of, of serving the Lord. You know, you don't get, always get to be like everyone else. It may be that God will set certain boundaries upon your life, certain restrictions. Certain sacrifices in this life may be asked of you in your serving and following after the Lord. And the question is, are you prepared for that? Are you willing to lay down whatever this life may offer, whatever opportunities even you might have been able to pursue had it not been for the Lord's calling on your life? And are you able to do that without any regret, without any qualms? Are you able to do that because the Lord is enough for you? Now we do notice that all of their needs were met. God did not leave them without their, their necessities. They would have cities, they would have land, they would prosper. But it would be different. And it seems to me that they were God-directed, not self-directed, and something that God had called them to. And I, I do believe that that's something of God's calling upon our lives uh, in whatever area of ministry that we might serve, whether it be pastoring or whether it just be serving in the local body as a Christian you know we are called to be different from the world you may not be able to do everything that the rest of the family is doing you may not be able to engage in all of the the things that you know even you know friends are doing and you might even in your heart long to do but the Holy Spirit may not be allowing that the Holy Spirit may be saying that's not what I have for you that's not going to be your your destiny. I've got something else for you. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And will that be enough for you? So just stood out to me how that must have been going on. That wrestling no doubt took place in the Levite's heart and they had to come to that place of trusting the Lord. We also notice just the city of refuge. And that does, that does speak to us, doesn't it, about the Lord Himself. The psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And I wonder if the writer of Hebrews, I'm not certain about this, but I think he might have had the cities of refuge in mind when he said this, that uh, we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil that the writer of Hebrews was so kind of a lot, you know, drawing out some of the Old Testament truths and, and enlightening in the New Testament uh, light of Christ. And so I wonder if he had that in mind when he, when he said, you know what, we've fled for a city of refuge. Our refuge is the hope that we have in Christ. We've left all and gone uh, to find refuge in Him. So certainly that speaks to us of God's refuge for our lives as well. Let's finish up tonight on chapter 36. And again, I'm gonna, this is a shorter chapter. We'll, we'll actually be able to read through it. And then I just have some application thoughts for us in that passage also. So, 
verses 1 through 4, we see a new concern that arises here just before they cross over into the promised land. Now, the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will, be, it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to their inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Now, you remember back in Numbers chapter 27, we talked about those daughters of Zelophehad. I just love those girls. I got, I'm really looking forward to meeting them. You know, they, they had that bold faith, you know. They'd lost, uh, their, their father had died in the wilderness. They had no brothers. And they didn't want to lose out on God's promise of uh, land that He had promised to their father. And they came to Moses and said, Give us the land. Even though there's no son to pass it through, we want what God has promised. And Moses inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, the daughters of Zelophehad have spoken what is right. Give them their request. And not only for them, but let this become the standard for all daughters of Israel whose fathers die and there are no remaining brothers. They, the daughters, can inherit what God has promised to keep the, the land and the father's lineage alive and his inheritance moving forward. So, that's the daughters of Zelophehad. That's their story. But now, some of the some from their tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, they're coming into Moses and they're saying, you know, Moses, we got we got this problem with the daughters of Zelophehad. The Lord told you to give them the land, but now that we're getting ready to go in and settle the land, and, and remember, half the tribe of Manasseh was going to settle there on the other side of the Jordan, so already some of the land was being divvied up, and their concern was, what about if these daughters get married to somebody outside of our tribe? Then, you know, when uh, the husband then has rights to the, the land of the, of the wife, and so then the land that's supposed to be part of our tribe and stay within our uh, you know tri- uh, tribal group is going to actually end up being you know land righted over to somebody else's tribe and the borders are going to be all mixed up we're going to have suppose one of the daughters of Zelophehad marries one of the you know sons of Benjamin and then you know now the land belongs to the tribe of Benjamin the year of jubilee when all the debts would be kind of released then that would become no longer our property so they have a dilemma and they want to know, you know, how's this going to work out? Because it's going to get very confusing. You can imagine years to come when everybody's going to have a claim within our land. And so the, the, the sons of Manasseh were concerned. Well, it's a legitimate concern. The Lord's going to answer. Verse 5. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands. Concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they, 
think is best, whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers, and every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel uh, each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. So the Lord gives a response to this dilemma. These sons of Joseph, this tribe of Manasseh, their concern is legit. We, I don't want the borders being shifted all around. I don't want tribes mingling land. I want these lands to remain within the tribes that, that have inherited them. And I want them to stay in the lineage of that tribe perpetually. I, want, I don't want the, this kind of cross uh, you know, inheritance going on. So here's the way we'll solve it. Those daughters of Zelophehad who will inherit land, as we've already covered, They will have to marry within your tribe so that the land stays within the tribe. It doesn't cross over to another tribe. Now we're going to read about how, and not only the daughters of Zelophehad, but any other daughters, since that was the the daughters of Zelophehad were now uh, had set up as the the you know the basis on which all daughters would inherit. Not only them, but all these other daughters as well. They would have to stay and, and marry within their tribe. Now, I'm going to read how the daughters of Zelophehad responded. Verse 10. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. I love these girls. For Mala, Tirza, Hogla, Milka. It's hard to love Hogla, but you have to. And Noah... The daughters of Zelophehad were married to the sons of their father's brothers. Now this is not their immediate cousins. When it says fathers, it means the whole lineage of the tribe. Verse 12, they were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and judgments which which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. These daughters of Zelophehad, they get this instruction. Girls, you're going to get the land and you're, you're free to marry anybody that seems good to you, but it has to be within the tribe because we don't want that land to pass to another tribe. And the daughters of Zelophehad did exactly as the Lord commanded. Now you can imagine what they might have said, right? Oh, that's not fair. The sons of Benjamin are so cute. And they're just, oh, I met this one. I'm falling in love with him. And how can I now destroy my life? Right? (laughs) Boy, it speaks to us, doesn't it? The Scriptures give one... One exhortation for believers, that you not be unequally yoked, that you marry within the family of God, that you marry someone who has like faith with you. And yet, boy, 
Some have a hard time with that. Oh, but he's just so wonderful. Oh, but she's, you know, she's interested in the Lord. She's not against Christianity. Right? The daughters of Zelophehad, they demonstrate once again this faith. It speaks of priority. It speaks of what of value. It speaks of commitment. You know, there's a lot here from the sons of Joseph too. I, I, I admire their concern, you know. The land that God had promised, now it wasn't going to affect them. It, it was something that they were concerned about for future generations, their heritage, their lineage. And yet, something in them rose up. You know what? This is God's promised possession to us. We don't want to lose it. It's of of importance to us. We don't want to just think, oh, well, that'll be for some future generations to figure out. It's not going to be a problem for us. No, they, they wanted to ensure that their heritage would also have the same opportunities to enjoy the promised blessings of God. It speaks of of something that was important, something of promise. And they valued it. And they came and they, and they they brought this concern to Moses. Now compare that with Esau. You remember Esau? Esau, it says in Hebrews chapter 12 concerning Esau, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it deeply with tears. Esau's problem was he didn't value the things of God. He didn't value the heritage of God in his life. He only valued what was important to him right now, what was you know, appealing to his own lust and appetites in the moment. But these sons of Joseph coming to Moses, they're thinking years down the road and they're wanting God's best for themselves and for their families. It speaks of priorities. It speaks of of what you really truly value. It speaks of your first love. And how often we, I think, sometimes trade out the blessings and promises and good things of God for something temporal, something that's before us, something that's appealing right now. The daughters of Zelophehad, they obeyed. They trusted the Lord to bless and provide for them within the tribe He placed them in. You know, these are girls that have faith. They've already demonstrated that. And so when when God says, listen, you're free to marry whoever you like, it's just got to be within this, you know, tribe of people. And that would be a lot of people. These tribes were hundreds of thousands strong. So it's not like you had to, you know, marry within just a small sampling. Basically, the tribe is available, but you you got to stay within the tribe. And the daughters of Zelophehad, they did just exactly as the Lord said. Because in their hearts, they knew, listen, God, God will have somebody good for me in this tribe. This is what He wants. He wants the land that He's given to me to stay within the family, and so we'll marry within the family, the, the tribe. We're okay with that because we know God's looking out for us. We don't have to rise up and say, Oh, but we want to marry somebody from Reuben. We want to marry... Just God will bring the right person. And if this is God's plan, if this is God's provision, then we trust Him. Because God's already blessed us. God's already answered our request. He's shown us that He's for us and not against us. He's given us the promised land. 
And he's and he's he's already acknowledged that we are part of his purpose and plan, and so we trust him. They didn't want to jeopardize what God had promised in their life. And can I say to you that nothing, nothing is worth missing God's plan and promise for your life. There is nothing that you could trade for God's promises, for God's blessing, for God's purpose and plan in your life that would ever compare with what He's called you to do. I'm reminded of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That, I think, is what's going on in the heart of the daughters of Zelophehad. So I can't marry a guy from Judah. Who cares? I've got God and His promises. I've got the promised land. I've got the Lord on my side. Raphael likes that. <laughs> and that's the way Paul felt. You know, whatever, whatever I've had, whatever I've lost, whatever opportunities, whatever my career might have been, whatever my, you know, Pharisee, uh, you know, reputation might have become, it's all rubbish compared to gaining Jesus Christ. And this needs to be the heart in the believer. It may require certain sacrifices. There may, may be certain limits that God would place upon your life. Does He not have the right? Does He not have the right and the privilege, having bought you, having paid for your life with His own blood, having saved you from a horrible judgment for sin, having died upon the cross for your sins, does He not have the right to now ask you to live for Him in His design and purpose for your life, knowing that His design and purpose is good, that it is the highest possible use of your life. He's not limiting you because He wants to rip you off. He's limiting you because He wants to protect you. He wants to bless you. He wants to bring you into the fullness of what He has for you. And who would know better? Who will know best what is best for our lives? God. God, put the boundaries around that I need. Put the limits on me that I, that I need because I know they come out of love, not of restriction or bondage, but out of grace because you want me to walk in the freedom of relationship with you and not end up stumbling into the mud on my own and ending up in a place of of difficulty and struggle and bondage. God wanting to protect. God wanting to protect His people. God wanting to ensure blessing for them and their children and their children's children and the lineage beyond them. God wanting to ensure a nation that would be blessed. A nation that would have the fullness of of what He desired to give them. And this is what He desires in our lives. Anything that God calls us to is because He wants to use our lives for good, for His blessing, for for your blessing. Any limits, any boundaries, any requirements, any sacrifices, 
John said his commandments are not burdensome. These are the things we should long to do because we know and trust that our God loves us and that his design for us is good. It may not seem like it in the instant, okay? It may not seem like it in the moment. Does he have the right? Yes. And does he have the wisdom to know that what may not seem perfect to you right now, that God looking out through the rest of your life, God looking out through the corridors of time, he knows what's best. Aren't you thankful for some of the prayers that he didn't answer? Aren't you thankful for some of the things that you thought were so great at the moment that He rescued you out of those great things? Some of those decisions, some of those choices that were made. God is looking to save. God is looking to bless. And uh, we see it here all the way through the book of Numbers. God looking only to protect and help His people come into the fullness of His promises. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this study that we conclude tonight through the book of Numbers. We see, God, your love and your care over a people. We see your patience and your long-suffering. We see your determined effort to work with a people that would have ups and downs and make mistakes. And yet you loved them, Lord a people that you wanted to have relationship with. You wanted to live and dwell in their midst. You wanted to be their God. And so, Lord, you're bringing them to that promised land, giving them instructions that would protect them and that would help and bless them. And, Lord, we see so much concerning our own lives. We, too, Lord, are a people trying to live in the fullness of, to live in the promised land of what you have for us in Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the wisdom and the instruction and limits where, where, are, where they're needful, freedoms where they're appropriate. But God, that you would lead us and guide us. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have stubbornly pushed our own agenda. Lord, how, how we regret some of those things, but even still, your grace and your mercy and your long-suffering and your patience with us, Lord, you continue to work with us, you continue to help. Just keep your heads bowed with me for a moment. Just sense in my heart the Lord wanting to minister something here tonight. I guess the thought, I, I feel like the thought the Lord is putting in my heart just to share with you is that you would trust the Lord with your future that you would not take matters into your own hands, that you would not be afraid of what the Lord has planned or purposed, but that you would trust Him, knowing how much He loves you, knowing how much He has already done for you, how many times He has already been there for you, 
This is not a time to doubt Him. This is not a time to be afraid. This is not a time to try and manage it in your own strength. Trust the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Stay within the boundary and limit of what He has given to you. And trust Him. He will bring you into a place of blessing. He will bring you into a place of fullness. He will bring you into a place of safety. And you will not regret having put your trust in the Lord. I pray if that's your heart tonight that you would receive that from the Lord. I sense very strongly that that is a word for some. And I pray that it will encourage your heart tonight. I also want to give, just in closing, an opportunity tonight if you are here and you do not have a relationship with the Lord, but He's speaking to you tonight and you you want to give your life to Him. You want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You want to have your sins forgiven because of what He has done for you at the cross. And you've never really had that, that prayer, that experience. But He's speaking to you now, and I'd love to pray for you if that's where you're at. Or maybe you need to, what we call, rededicate, recommit your life. You had a relationship with Him at one time, maybe even close. But today, right now, you are distant from God. You've lost sight of Him in your life. You're not living for Him. You're living for yourself. You've taken matters into your own hand. You're doing your own thing. And God is speaking to you. He's inviting you to come back under His care, back under His watch, back into relationship with Him, coming back to your first love. I'd love to pray for you too. If you're here tonight and you need to receive the Lord for the very first time or you need to recommit your life to Him, would you raise your hand wherever you're seated tonight? God bless you. Any others? The Lord is speaking to you. God bless you, sir between you and Him, but you know He's speaking to you. Let me pray for you. Raise your hand. Let me see it. Anyone else? Bless you. Anyone else before I pray for these two? So, Lord, I do thank you for the ministry of your word tonight. I pray that you would meet these hearts, these lives, Lord, with your spirit, with your love, as they cry out with, with, from their hearts tonight, Lord. We would pray, God, forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. Jesus, cleanse us. Take our sins from us, Lord, and... Make us white as snow tonight. We put our trust in You. We turn from the way in which we've been living. And God, we want to come to You and we want to be living in relationship with You. We want You to be directing our steps. We want our lives to be filled with Your Spirit and Your grace. Oh God, come. Meet these hearts in this moment. May they be restored and renewed in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.